You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by the generous support of fans just like you. Find out how you can support the show and get access to exclusive content, merchandise discounts, and more at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. If you want to learn even more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book at cacpodcast.com slash book, or check out our Curious About Cannabis online courses and educational events at the Natural Learning Academy at learn.naturalledu.com. Almost practically every pharmaceutical company you can think of was developing uh, these antagonists for the CB1 receptor because you can also imagine this was a new mechanism. And it is not so often yeah. that a drug for a new mechanism um, yeah, is developed. I mean, it happens a few times a year, but it's not. It's it's pretty unique. So a lot of companies thought, oh, this is a, this is a, a great opportunity, which it is on in, in on paper in many ways, uh, but there were issues. When we work untiringly so that our children are obliged, obliged to learn the truth, because it is only through you're listening to the curious about cannabis podcast hey everybody this is jason wilson with the curious about cannabis podcast thanks so much for tuning in once again so today I am delighted to be sitting down once again with Dr. Linda Klumpers uh, to talk about some really, really fascinating subjects and some work that um, she's taking on that I think you'll find really, really fascinating. Uh, Dr. Klumpers, thanks so much for being willing to join us again on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me again. Last time uh, was, uh, was, was fun, so I'm looking forward to this one again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's been uh, a little over a year or so. Um, so, a lot's uh, happened in that short amount of time. And one of the things I wanted to let people know is you've got an exciting new uh, position, which sort of segues into some of the projects that I wanted to talk about. But do you mind um, sharing kind of what your your new endeavor is? Um, sure. So uh, I was asked by uh, by a company to uh, join them for uh, the chief scientific officer position. So uh, responsible for um, everything science, which is, uh, uh, of course, uh, very cool if, uh, if that's what you like. And the company, um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I should mention its name. Um, it's it's totally up to you because I can, I can edit this, however. So um, depending on how comfortable they are, it's totally up to you. Yeah, no, they, they are called uh, Anebulo Pharmaceuticals and uh, they are a pharmaceutical uh, company. Um, and the, the first mission is to develop a compound uh, and get it on the market for the uh, treatment of uh, acute cannabis intoxication. Um, That's super, super uh, fascinating. Um, and it, it's something, <clears throat> there are some companies that have kind of um, try to approach this uh, kind of from the dietary supplement angle. Uh, there's a couple of products that have kind of been put out there. Um, I've played around with some of them. My wife is super, super sensitive to THC. So we've experimented with some of those and, um, you know, they're usually not super effective. Um, at least, you know, the ones out there that are leveraging like CBD or 
Uh, there's one out there leveraging Olivetol and, and some other things. Um, but uh, can you uh, describe like what's, you know, because your background is in pharmacology, where does your mind go when you start thinking about um, cannabis intoxication and how to kind of um, try to cancel that out? Oh, so many things. And uh, also, uh, yeah, uh, inspired by what you just said, uh, there are so many other uh, botanicals and other compounds out there mm -hmm. that try to counteract uh, the, the, um, the, the side effects if people um, overdose. And um, right. maybe it's good to talk about that, but maybe it's also good to talk about uh, what does it actually mean a cannabis overdose? Because a lot of people yeah, think, I think that's good. Yeah, uh, think that that might be a bit uh, well exaggerated. Um, right. Yeah, and uh, because you can't you can't die if you take uh, too much THC, right? It's not um, life threatening. Uh, THC being the active compound in cannabis that makes you feel high and causes most of the, the side effects that people notice. Um, so you, you might, you might wonder why well, you can't die of it. Why is it needed to have, uh, a, a treatment against cannabis intoxication? And, um, I, I'm not saying this because I just joined this company and it might sound, oh, she maybe wants to talk about it because she wants to promote her product or whatever. And, uh, that's <laughs> fine if you think that way. But <clears throat> in fact, I've been working on cannabinoid antagonists, uh, for, for the longest time. That's how yeah. I entered the cannabis space. And, uh, and I, I, I don't see this from uh, necessarily a company perspective, but really from myself personally, what do we see happening here? Um, around us, what are the publications uh, that, that give us information on cannabis intoxication and from talking to people, of course. And <clears throat> what you see, Colorado, the, the state where I live, um, was also the state that had the, uh, there was the first to allow uh, adult use, so to say recreational right. use. And um, because that is so different from medicinal use uh, and so different from pharma, uh, with, with yeah. their tablets and capsules, etc. What you saw coming on the market are, are are the most attractive looking and tasting gummies and chocolates and whatnot. And and with that, with the oral administration, which is already a problem for uh, a lot of new people on the block, so to say, they right. they don't feel the effects right away. They don't feel it after an hour. They might take another one. It's yeah. possible to overdose yourself and get and and and, and get um yeah reach the er but on the other hand there's this group of of children and of of dogs yeah. and, and 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 others that also um uh, end up at a physician uh due to um uh, intoxication and overdose and and they try to calm that down and then the symptoms are are pretty various uh for everybody they can be different so um, uh, I, I'm not sure you said uh, you talked about THC sensitivity. So maybe, yeah, maybe you want to share yeah. what type of effects uh, you are thinking of in first place. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, the things that come to mind immediately, um, you know, for myself, I don't I don't really have this problem. I tolerate THC really, really well. But my wife, whenever she consumes THC, uh, rarely she has a good experience, but often it's just uh, uh, it's sort of, um, you know, heart racing, feeling unsettled, um, anxious. And there's sort of a, if you're not 
very familiar with the effects, there's sort of a feedback loop that can happen where you, your anxiety increases because you don't understand why you're feeling so disrupted, especially if you've been told that, oh, cannabis is so safe and, you know, you don't need to worry about this or that. And then you get into the situation where you're really having a challenging experience and, um, you know, there's sort of the classic cases of people thinking they're dying and they, you know, call the police or something. And, you know, there's, there's that, uh, it's kind of funny, but it's also serious, uh, that was on the news, uh, many years ago, the uh, police officers that uh, like confiscated some cannabis or something and ended up using it and then uh, thought they were dying and, and called 911. And that phone call has kind of gotten really popular. But it is a serious thing. And I, I personally know somebody whose dog got into um, a bunch of edibles that they had stashed away in a closet and the dog just happened to find them. And it was a twofold thing because with dogs, it's like, the THC is a problem, but also chocolate is a problem. And so, you know, on multiple levels, um, it's a concern. And so I, from my personal experience, I know, you know, specifically just with THC sensitive individuals and with pets, um, there, there does need to be some tool to help those situations. And like you said, it's not about a lethal overdose, but it's about a psychological, you know, more so than anything, kind of a psychological and then the heart racing and stuff too, um, element to it where you're just in a bad experience and, and that bad experience, I think people underestimate how, um, how much those negative experiences can affect somebody. Um, you know, they can be somewhat traumatizing. And then when you start talking about children, you know, that's a entirely different situation altogether. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just from my limited experiences, I, I can totally see a need for this type of tool, you know, to be developed. And I don't think an effective one has been developed yeah, yet. Yeah, um, true. And those, uh, yeah, what you say, <clears throat> there can be negative consequences. People can feel bad. But what you said about, but isn't this supposed to not be a bad uh, yeah, compound or, or it's a botanical and, and that dissonance is of course also disturbing for some people um, that actually, yeah, you think it's it's yes. all uh, safe and happy, it's supposed to make you feel happy, euphoric, and then that happens. So that's quite, um, yeah, that's quite a contrast. And that's also, uh, of course, for a lot of scientists who try to develop uh, cannabinoid products, um, cannabis products, that's a big challenge because there are these biphasic effects of it can relieve your anxiety, it can make you more anxious, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, indeed, um, um, there are plenty of reasons, indeed, uh, for people to be wanting something that... Uh, either takes away some of that, that feeling of I've just gone too far, but certainly for emergency physicians who receive these patients and then think, okay, what to do next? Because as you say, uh, the botanicals, but also pharmaceutical um, uh, products that are out there, they are all able to treat parts of, uh, of the intoxication, yeah. parts so, uh, parts, the anxiety, the heart racing. But there, if you if you think about yeah, the whole picture that there's actually nothing, there's no treatment for cannabis intoxication at this point. And it's hard too, because, and this is something you understand really well, is that, you know, when you're manipulating, let's just talk about just the CB1 receptor, 
when you're manipulating that, you're not just manipulating the CB1 receptor. There's all this interconnected, you know, interplay between all of these different receptor systems. And so once you start that cascade, uh, you're now dealing with just, you know, I could say dozens, I'm sure there's more um, of, of other signaling cascades that have been initiated um, from that point. And so a lot of these things that are on the market kind of help some, yeah, some piece of the pie, but really don't don't get at the the heart of things yeah and that is exactly now you're you're diving into pharmacology and the mechanism because all these uh yeah botanical compounds pharmaceutical compounds that that treat elements of the intoxication all touch on one of the receptor system that is actually not the main cause of this intoxication um the main cause being it is that cb1 receptor that starts everything and that spreads this whole cascade, so to say. So indeed, um, it, it's 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 nice. All these individual compounds going to uh, different set of systems, but indeed, if you target the cores, THC uh, mainly targeting and, and causing all these effects on the CB1 receptor, um, and if you can target that CB1 receptor. That might actually be a good starting point for treating um, THC intoxication. Yep. And how does that look? Um, and, and now we're going to spin off into the weeds. But um, you know, once someone has consumed THC and THC is, you know, it's it's gotten to the point where it's being circulated in the body and it's interacting with these receptors. What does it take to sort of hijack the receptor away from THC or just sort of? you know, uh, nudge THC out of the way or even manipulate the shape of the receptor or something. But like, what what does that take uh, once you've already got THC or another CB1 agonist? Because there's also, we also have to consider, you know, in places like the Southeast where I came from, um, synthetic cannabinoids are still being used fairly commonly. So you still have these kind of super agonists um, that people are also experimenting with. So yeah, what is, in, just in, how you're thinking about approaching this. Yeah. How do you, how do you do that? How do you take priority over these CB1 agonists that are trying to get in there and do their thing? Yeah. Well, so many elements in one question uh, again, because you also touched yeah. on those, those um, synthetic cannabinoids and, and that is a whole different story um, that also exactly fits in this story. Um, but it's also very interesting yeah. to, to talk about, but first like, um, uh, the question, you take THC, it travels to your receptor, it sits there, and now we want to do something with this receptor. So what's that going to be? Well, and that is exactly the experiments that are now upcoming. Because when, yeah, nice. yeah, uh, so very excited, but these studies will start this year. So I'm super, super exciting to, uh, just excited to see what is going to happen. Um, because we already do know, this is from uh, studies that we have done uh, like uh, 15 years ago, we already do know that if you first give the antagonist and then give THC, then we already know that um, uh, the antagonist can block the THC effect. And um, uh, so now the question is, okay, you first give THC, then the antagonist comes uh, around the corner and what is going to happen. So um, a, a few things are in, uh, important here, uh, mainly one, that is you are able to measure the strength by which 
the THC locks into the receptor. Because you have compounds that go to a receptor, to a binding place where all the effects happen. And uh, you have particular compounds that go there and that actually never really want to leave. And yeah, yeah. and yeah, then you have compounds that go there and that might want to leave, but you can get competition at that receptor. So one wants to bind stronger than the other one, and then which one is going to win? Well, that is that is something that we are going to uh, find out, so to say. You can try to find that out uh, already in vitro, so not inside the humans. Um, and we have um, yeah, a, a good um, information right now to see the, uh, to, to, to predict that this is going to be uh, uh, a good, healthy competition, so to say. It's not that THC is locked in forever, as yeah. you know. Yeah, and and I'm trying to remember some of my uh, technical. I haven't taken psychopharmacology in a really long time, but I'm trying to remember. Are those the the um, like the peak high values? Uh, is that with that uh, measurement? Is or is that yeah? Something so else? Uh, I think you are now talking about uh, something else. But indeed, those are um, uh, bind. Uh, you 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 have um, you have uh, let's say uh, all kinds of different measures at the receptor level. Uh, so you have mm -hmm. um, the selectivity. So um, compared to other receptors, how likely are you to, to bind uh, somewhere? Yeah. <clears throat> then you have uh, something that is called, um, uh, let's say, the affinity. So uh, yeah, yeah. How, how strong will something bind with a certain um, uh, concentration? And then you have uh, something uh, called the actual effect, which is also um, a link to... Um, uh, if you have a certain concentration of which effect are you going to see? And, um, uh, and those are actually three main measures at the receptor level. I'm not a receptor pharmacologist myself. That's a lot of in vitro uh, work, uh, but those are really the, um, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the main measure, so to say. And if you look at THC, uh, it has a stronger preference, a stronger selectivity for CB1. It can also mm -hmm. bind to CB2. And if you look at the specific compounds that yep. we are developing, it is highly selective for CB1 only. And that is actually what you want, as most of the side effects caused by THC um, are, um, uh, yeah, are, are CB1 mediated. But uh, if you have the, um, uh, the what you are we're talking about, synthetic compounds, and you were already calling, uh, mm -hmm. mentioning super agonism, then you, you, it is very possible that you are um, dealing with a compound that has such a strong um, yeah, affinity for this receptor that maybe does not really want to get away. But what is also very well possible is that these compounds uh, are a little bit dirty. And what I mean is, uh, well, actually, in multiple ways. In the first place, uh, whatever you can buy in all these color colorful packaging, they ha it hasn't been tested. So you don't know what's really in there. But besides, this is a very different story. Uh, you are dealing with um, the um, uh, cannabinoids that are uh, put in there, that are synthesized in a lab, and that are not necessarily ever properly tested in humans. So we don't even know yeah. if yeah what it does in humans, but we also don't always know fully what other places these compounds go to. Do they bind to other receptors? And are these 
side effects actually, do they have nothing to do with the cannabinoid system at all? And is it just something else we're looking at? Those are things we don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, to, to the point, uh, they do bind to the CB1 receptor. So there are a lot of effects that we could counteract with um, yeah, something, a CB1 antagonist. Yeah, and that's you brought up several points that are really interesting. One is sort of the kind of um, promiscuity of the receptors themselves. That there's a lot of things, especially when you're talking about G protein coupled receptors. Um, uh, it's common that a, a lot of things interact with a lot of things, and so it can be very confusing when you're honed in on just looking at one thing. Whether you're, yeah, if you're not teasing out these issues around selectivity and everything you could um, sort of think you're developing something that's targeting what you want. And then when you start giving it to people, all of a sudden you're getting this wide variety of actions that you didn't take into account because that compound is going to interact with so many other things. Uh, one of the things that I thought about was, so this idea of just with THC, do you foresee a role in um, not just sort of, uh, you know, responding to emergency and like overdose situations with THC, but also uh, kind of a, a possible adjunct therapy kind of situation where someone maybe, and the research would have to be done, it's not there, but maybe we find that some conditions react well to a combination of a par nice partial agonist like THC with uh, some sort of antagonist being mixed in there so that you're getting more CB2 effects and maybe just a little bit of CB1, but very little, and sort of modulating the activity. Do you see a, a role for these as being co-administered as a therapeutic as well as, um, you know, uh, besides just a kind of response to a troublesome situation? Yeah, I, I, I definitely do. Um, I think that uh, actually, uh, yeah, it would be great if more people would, uh, would think that way. Um, it's, uh, but there are sometimes uh, issues with uh, getting uh, these type of uh, um, uh, combinations um, mm -hmm. yeah, through, through regulatory um, uh, bodies. Um, yeah, it's it's a very good question. I think it's it's really important. Uh, there are multiple ways of thinking of um, of polypharmacy, and uh, because that is essentially yeah kind yeah. of what you're talking about. Uh, but somehow um, uh, there is still too much thinking of um, uh, targeting one specific target in the body, and that is really unfortunate because what you are saying will open up so many more avenues um, of uh, uh, trying to um, uh, uh, give uh, multiple compounds at sub-therapeutic levels. Yeah. So they're actually not individually not, not active, but if you give them together, they will be, but hopefully yeah. not for the side effects that they would give. So yeah, and what you are doing is, is more, uh, yeah, uh, also from pharmacologic manipulation, so to say. If we mm -hmm. if we make sure that this compound activates that receptor, but we block something else, and yeah, I think that that is uh, um, certainly uh, something that that should be uh, considered for certain conditions. But yeah, we're 
we're not there yet. Uh, but it's, yeah. it's certainly something that is on my mind that I think about uh, regularly. How could we, could we treat this or that in alternative ways with the, with the, with the compounds we have instead of making new ones? Exactly. Because <laughs> putting things into combinations, it's like you've got your, your tools laid out. And then all of a sudden, once you start combining things, you get this just like, uh, I'm probably using the wrong mathematical terminology, but you sort of get this exponential increase in the number of tools available because all of a sudden you have all of these different iterations of combinations that you can make and experiment with and try out. Um, and so it, it just unlocks more and more options. And, and for me, and I know there's a lot of hesitancy in the, particularly in the cannabis world, you know, uh, people are, skeptical or cynical about pharmaceuticals and when you especially when you start talking about combining you know isolated cannabinoids and things and but for me you know it's all just tools in the tool chest and you, you can't really dismiss anything but you know one thing i wanted to talk about was the uh, sort of classic story that maybe a lot of listeners aren't familiar with but certainly if you're in the cannabinoid pharmacology space or clinical cannabis space you've probably heard the story about uh rimonabant that and I may be pronouncing that wrong, but it was a compound developed, uh, was that in the eighties or so? It was uh, quite a while back that it was um, developed and um, it was sort of thought that it was a CB1 antagonist. And then as they started to use it clinically, it had um, actions that they didn't expect um, that kind of became quite bothersome. So, um, can you kind of uh, explain that story a little better than I just did? <laughs> and um, and maybe that'll kind of highlight why there's kind of, I don't know, so much resistance to this uh, kind of thinking. Because there is some decent precedent of why, you know, people should be a little um, hesitant if you don't understand the full story. Yeah, definitely. Oh, there's so much to that story. And to start with the pronunciation, it was uh, developed in France. So if you oh, give okay. it a French accent, uh, maybe <laughs> yeah. it should be good. Yeah. Uh, so um, where did it start? So, um, well, to go back in time, of course, the cannabinoid system uh, hasn't, wasn't discovered that long ago, relatively. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we were already there and, uh, <laughs> and it, was, uh, it was still um, needed to get... Uh, uh, elucidated and, uh, and yeah, after the discovery of the cannabinoid uh, receptors of the system, mm -hmm. um, people started thinking, hey, uh, so if THC induces the munchies, then that probably means that if we and and if there are binding places for that in the body, that so if we block those binding places, we might actually be able to treat obesity, to make people eat yeah. less. And uh, well, it's a very simple thought that's very good, but it turned out to be more complex than just that. And, um, and also it was a bit short-sighted in a way because you need to be careful with these things. If people use THC to get happy, then what happens <laughs> if you block that? When you reverse yeah, that. Yeah. exactly. And we don't have a lot of, uh, because you were just talking about uh, tools and a toolkit. The toolkit here is super limited because we only have two receptor types of which one, CB1, is responsible for almost all the defects we know. 
Uh, I was once asked, hey, uh, Linda, can you maybe um, develop a, a, a compound that, uh, um, uh, that that, for example, can do all these things that THC can, but then without these and these side effects. And it's really tough if you only yeah. have one receptor responsible for everything. There's only so much you can play with. Well, we probably will get back to that later because that is also something that we actually did with the CB1 receptor. Um, and, uh, and I'm saying we, I just, you know, I'm just one little... Uh, drop in the whole ocean off of research. Yeah, the, the global we. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, uh, Remonobonds uh, developed uh, somewhere in the 1990s. Uh, first publication, I think, was mid or late 1990s. And um, it was supposed that it was supposed to be this wonder pill because if you think of all the receptor yeah. effects, CB1 effects, uh, um, maybe anti-obesity, uh, maybe we can treat addiction. So um, it was quite the promise uh, by which Remonobon was put in the, in the media um, in that way. So it's um, uh, Sanofi Aventis, um, that's a company, a pharmaceutical company that was developing uh, Remonobond at that time, they wanted to be the first out there because it was not just Sanofi developing this compound um, and, and not just this compound. They were developing many different uh, bonds, uh, Remonobond and Serenobond and Drenobond. Yeah. And uh, there were Ah, I see. <laughs> there were other companies also developing these bonds, Sultanabond, Teranabond. So almost practically every pharmaceutical company you can think of was developing uh, these antagonists for the CB1 receptor because you can also imagine this was a new mechanism. And it is not so often yeah. that a drug for a new mechanism um, yeah, is developed. I mean, it happens a few times a year, but it's not. It's it's pretty unique. So a lot of companies thought, oh, this is a, this is a, a great opportunity, which it is on in, in on paper in many ways. Uh, but there were issues. Hilary Monogant reached a market uh, first for the treatment of uh, obesity. And um, obesity is, is a condition by which uh, people um, yeah, have very uh, high uh, body fat. Uh, that's typically for for yeah for for um, uh, defined uh, so to say as your um, your your body surface per 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 length your body mass index. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was developed for people with obesity or for people with overweight with. Um, an accompanying disease. So, uh, yeah, a metabolic mm. disease. And um, what we are talking about here, because I also want to put things in perspective, there are not so many uh, compounds on the market that treat overweight or obesity, even though it is yeah, a huge yeah. problem um, worldwide. And um, yeah, uh, just, for, just for information, we were talking here about uh, if you compare people who took Remonobond versus placebo, and both groups that were treated also received other coaching, like that they had to move enough and just a more holistic approach. Yeah, gotcha. yeah it was not yeah. just take this pill and go back uh, on the couch and eat your chips. <laughs> <laughs> but these people had an advantage <laughs> and lost more weight than the placebo group 
But uh, yeah, I mean, I am a scientist and I try to stay objective, but I do have some opinions sometimes too, you know, I don't always voice them. But often I do. Mm-hmm, of course. <laughs> and uh, we're talking, yeah, we're talking <laughs> here about people who had an, um, a, 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 a BMI of above 30. So that, that is obese. And then these people would lose over, over an entire year, they would u- lose around five kilos more than people um, that, that were on placebo. Mm. So that is maybe statistically significant is it clinically significant well i think it's a very small percentage of someone's body weight five kilograms on someone who has a bmi of 30. so yeah i don't think it was that yeah uh, groundbreaking of a result but right it's like 10 pounds over a year 11 pounds over a year sorry Uh, yes 11 pounds over a year (laughs) that's correct yeah no it's good yeah it's good to have both, yeah. Yeah, these studies are mainly done in Europe, but well, yeah. and the United so, States uh, really needs to catch up on switching over to international units. It's still absurd that we don't. <laughs> yeah, it would certainly be practical, uh, I think, for for global communication. I'm not saying how that affects people's daily lives within the United States, because that must be a very very hard change to make. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, so so I just wanted to, to paint that picture that we know what we're talking about when we talk about weight loss. We should not, I don't think that people should expect uh, this dramatic weight loss for going from a BMI of 30 mm-hmm. to 25 in six months, for example. But uh, that said, I mean, every kilo counts uh, for mm-hmm. health. Uh, for people's well-being, so it, it it is a very very important topic. But so so back to the whole story of okay, we're targeting the CD1 receptor here. People lose weight, but what are the other consequences? And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, there were more people in the treated group than in the placebo group that got uh, depressive thoughts, uh, suicidal thoughts, and even there were more suicides in the treated group than placebo group. Well, gosh, yeah. and that is very, very sad. Uh, I want to make a few notes there. Um, so it was certainly a difference. Generally, when people do lose weight, um, be it uh, on, on a, a non-interventional uh, regimen, so to say, <clears throat> whatever that is, uh, because I would try to, yeah. to, to compare it to people who got a, a gastric bypass or something. Th- these people right, right. are already very sensitive to developing Uh, depressive um, feelings Um, but the other thing is also that when this came out um, and uh, yeah it it was um, uh, this is of course a very serious problem the the product label got changed excuse me Uh, the product label got changed so um, uh, doctors were not supposed anymore to prescribe remonabond to uh, people who already had a history or a present condition of uh, mm. depressive feelings. So you would think, okay, with that change, uh, the problem is solved, right? But uh, that was not really the case. And um, I, I don't know the exact numbers by heart, but it turned out when uh, an analysis was done at some point to see did this label change actually have effect? Because in practice it didn't. It turned out that uh, approximately 20% of the patients that were using Remonabond were also prescribed, um, let's say, antidepressive medicines. 
Uh, yeah. But if you would okay. ask the doctors who were prescribing, are you treating patients who suffer from depression? They would say, no. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you know. All sorts of things get confounded. Yeah, things might be good on paper, but but yeah, if you look at what people are actually doing, it, it just doesn't work. And that was, yeah, exactly, um, yeah, that, that was actually the end of Remonabond. Um, it was taken off the market because, um, because of the side effect profile, uh, among others. Um, could things have been changed? Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, so that it would be effective for at least some groups of people, um, certainly. Uh, so I think that uh, it should not have been the end of the story of this type of drugs for this particular condition. Um, yeah. But uh, it was. And because of all the legal consequences also and all the regulatory questions that followed after this compound came on the market um, at first in Europe, uh, in, in the United States, yeah. it never got on the market. Uh, but because of all this, what happened, uh, you already said, uh, you talked about the precedent that was set uh, earlier. Uh, other companies, yeah, pulled out. There, there, it was almost impossible to try and, and, and do it better. But there were a few companies who did try. So uh, one interesting finding when you study these people who did lose weight, there were other interesting things uh, beyond weight. Um, so, uh, beyond or next to the weight, namely, if you look in their blood, uh, a lot of their metabolic values in the blood, that's something that Americans do too. Eh? Every uh, year they, they do a physical exam, uh, for their health check mm-hmm. and they do a lipid panel. Well, if you look at that lipid panel, for example, you see that people were on, um, uh, on remodeling treatment that their lipid panel improved and it improves more. Mm-hmm then could just be um, accounted for by the weight loss. And, and that's very interesting. interesting. And um, it, it, it turned out these processes um, are, 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 are most likely mainly, um, ec- mainly in, uh, going on in the periphery of our bodies. Th- that is what the, what the hypothesis is. And so if you... Um, are able to give some improvement outside of the brain. And the problem is actually in the brain where you make people feel huh, uh, depressed. Mm-hmm. Then is there a way that we can, mm. yeah. And that's what, that's actually what happened. That's what we uh, tried. There was a, there are various companies in the United States, in Europe that um, uh, developed uh, compounds, compounds that are called peripherally acting CB1 antagonists. So those are CB1 antagonists that uh, do not go to the brain. And that is uh, possible because uh, to a certain extent, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to generalize it to keep things simple. Yeah. Yeah. But it's never to, perfect. Sorry. Oh, I said it's <laughs> never perfect. No, it's never perfect. Uh, but in, generally speaking, uh, there is a, a barrier between um, our vascular system and the brain. That's called uh, the BBB, the blood-brain barrier. And in that uh, blood-brain barrier, uh, well, there, there's a lot of things going on, a lot of pumps, uh, pumping stuff in and out. And because of this system that is there, 
um, there you can develop compounds that have difficulties going through that blood-brain barrier. And uh, so, so there are various peripherally acting antagonists that have been developed that are still in development. And uh, we actually tested uh, one such antagonist to see what happens. Um, and, nice. uh, and then you want to know, okay, so we want to make sure that we test that it is active outside of the brain, but it's not active inside of the brain. So how are you doing that if you have a group of healthy volunteers? <laughs> because if you, <laughs> if you give an antagonist, uh, then you won't see anything uh, acutely. So if you um, give the antagonist, and that is what we started talking about in the beginning, about something we did already, you first give the antagonist mm -hmm. and then you give THC. You try to make people feel the effects and feel high. Um, we know that the antagonist works, but the peripheral antagonist also works. So that means that if you give THC to people on that antagonist, they'll still feel high because the antagonist won't wow. block it. And that also uh, gives you an indication that most likely those antagonists will also not make you feel depressed if you use it chronically. We're talking here about chronic administration. Every day these people take it. If you take it one time, yeah. you won't you won't commit suicide. It's really about long term use. Well, now you're you're, you're getting into some really fascinating um, things now because, like earlier, we were talking about you know combinations of tools and how that can create new tools. And now you're you're is sort of going another layer deeper there of like, well, we can target where these things go in the body which then changes uh a lot of things regarding um how we use these these compounds therapeutically and in combination um and so this idea that you could have an antagonist that's working in the periphery and is active but someone could still take thc and get uh psychoactivity from it um because the receptors in the brain are not being antagonized um that just gets into layers of complexity that are really, really exciting. Uh, just from my perspective of trying to wrap my head around that, um, because once again, the iterations of possibilities are just so immense um, uh, that it's it's uh, that's really an incredible to think about. Yeah, yeah, very, very. It's uh, it, it, those are really, really uh, cool experiments, and we actually did this comparison uh, because you want to know: is this really true, or is this a uh, coincidence that we see this? Uh, mm -hmm. Is it? Is it? So, in the first place, we also, of course, verify that it is peripherally active. So, if you compare, uh, does someone get high? Yes. Does the heart rate increase? No. And then you know already there it works peripherally as well because you actually always when you give THC, people's heart rate will go up. Yeah. So that's one thing. But then you still might wonder: Okay, is this really? really correct what we see and uh, therefore we directly compare this um, compound with Remodabond itself. So mm. we were able to, uh, we just gave uh, gave Remodabond 60 milligrams and see what happened. And indeed these people weren't really getting high. So Remodabond was able to indeed cross that blood-brain barrier, act centrally uh, as opposed to that compound that worked uh, peripherally. Wow, that's that is uh, yeah super super cool and and I think something that 
people listening uh, might have a question about going back to the blood-brain barrier, because this is kind of a common thing that I run into a lot, and I was even guilty many years ago of, of repeating this, but there, um, I think there, there are assumptions about um, cannabinoids that if they're not um, contributing to some form of, of euphoria or, or psychoactivity, that they're not crossing the blood-brain barrier, and the common example used are the um, acidic cannabinoids. Um, uh, but as I've learn more, I haven't actually found good evidence that that's actually the case, that they're not crossing the blood-brain barrier. They just may not be interacting with um, receptors in the same way. So what uh, what are the dynamics, if you're able to get a little more specific, um, what are the qualities of a molecule that lend uh, to crossing the blood-brain barrier? Yeah, um, so uh, you can look in a, a very general way of what are the, the, the properties of, uh, of, of, of molecules that are, um, uh, uh, because I, uh, sorry, I don't know if I should say that, but you were standing still for a bit, so I'm just rephrasing just to make sure that I heard your question. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you were uh, asking what are the properties of molecules that uh, tend to or tend not to cross the blood-brain barrier, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's actually uh, you can you can compare it to uh, other membranes as well, but there are certain uh, uh, properties that are more uh, um, uh, yeah uh, prone to to respond to this than uh, than others. So in the first place, it is um, kind of the the lipophilicity of a compound mm -hmm. um, that will either keep it in or out. Um, and you actually there are there are active uh, transporters in in that barrier, in that membrane, so to say. So you are also able to um, uh, take those uh, transporters uh, out of the barrier and look in vitro and actually look, okay, what, what do these transporters respond to and what mm -hmm. not? So you can already yep. kind of predict um, in these, uh, whether something yeah, is going to get transported or not. Um, and uh, you have various groups uh, of these transporters, and um, uh, once one such. Uh, uh, well, I, I mean, I can we can get uh, into details or not, but um, uh, those those are the ways you you can test it, and uh, a lot of the properties that you uh, would expect from certain uh, membranes like uh, uh, lipophilicity and molecule size uh, all play a role in uh, whether these get transported or not. But just as you said, um, uh, with THCA, for example, uh, the, the, the question there is not as much, does it go through the blood-brain barrier, but more, wait, let's take a step back. Does it bind to the receptor at all or, uh, or not? <laughs> so that's a very, very good point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was, uh, you know, back five, 10 years ago or so when acidic cannabinoids were starting to get really popular. That was the immediate assumption is like, oh, they don't get you high, so they must not cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, and then as I thought about it, I was like, well, the only difference, I mean, that carboxylic acid group, it makes that a little less lipophilic, but not much, I, you know? Um, and so I just kind of wondered that. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the concept of transporters too, because that's such an important concept all throughout the body. Um, in how uh, compounds can get in cells and and um, even uh, like endogenous cannabinoids, that's a critical 
you know, uh, function of, of how endogenous cannabinoids can uh, kind of move inside and outside of cells. And um, like one thing people kind of take for granted, you know, there's CB1 receptors on, you know, there's mitochondrial CB1 receptors. Um, and, and then of course, uh, other types of um, enzymes and other chemical receptors that reside um, kind of around organelles and stuff. And so these transporters are critical in getting things to specific locations where they're not going to reach just from free floating um, in the body uh, and, and just kind of being transferred around. Whereas receptors that are sitting, sitting in the membranes of cells, and then if, if things are just circulating in the blood, then they, you know, can reach those things and, you know, and cause um, activity inside of the cells. But there's a whole other aspect to cannabinoid pharmacology, which is once you get the cannabinoids in the cell, there's all these other things that can happen too. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. That's kind of more of an advanced uh, pharmacology concept, but I think it's one that I don't know if I've ever brought up on the podcast. So I just want to okay. highlight that, that in, case, in case no one's thought about that, that there are actually these proteins that can move uh, compounds to places you know, of action, um, that that's, that's definitely something. And another thing that uh, in my pharmacology rambling, a lot of people don't um, realize that enzymes themselves to sort of act as receptors that they can be blocked and you know and manipulated in a very similar way so just to kind of uh paint the the complexity of all of these dynamics that we're discussing i just want to make sure we highlight those yeah no those are very very good points um uh, uh, environments in our bodies are are all very different and just to to yeah, simplify it to lipophilicity and hydrophilicity. So uh, some compounds, it's 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 like when you uh, try to uh, mix your oil and your vinegar for your salad dressing. Some compounds like to be in a more um, a fatty environment, and others in a watery environment, and that often does not go together. Um, the cannabinoid compounds are often uh, pretty fatty, so they they easily um, they they like to move towards fatty environment, but they also have a hard time in watery environments. And you're just say, saying that, um, yeah, uh, some elements of the cannabinoid system are indeed uh, inside the cell, which is a, an issue for cannabinoid compounds because they, uh, they don't like the inside of the cell because that's watery. So cannabinoid compounds don't really need transporters to transport through a cell membrane, which is a bilipid layer. It's fat. Uh, so mm -hmm. it goes pretty easily through a membrane, but then once they are in the cell, okay, now what? Because here it's watery and I don't like to be there. So you have these transporters that transport um, cannabinoids from, yeah, from the, in cell of the inside of the cell to uh, the organelles, the places where you said the enzymes are that break them down, for example. Um, Yep. Yeah, and and yeah, if you want to talk about uh, those things, uh, the transporters, uh, cannabinoid transporter, fatty acid binding protein, very generic name, then um, yep. yeah, the, the, I know some other people we can talk to for podcasts about transporters. It's very fascinating. We definitely, yeah, we should definitely make that happen because, like I said, I don't think it's anything I've ever specifically covered, but it is super fascinating and it highlights. Um, it sort of, um, to me, it, it sort of highlights the disconnect from the sort of pop culture education around the endocannabinoid system and the sort of real technical science. Um, because, 
elements like that just never get discussed and they're such a huge part of all of this functioning and so i always get nervous when you know it's always a balance as an educator having to simplify scientific concepts so that they're digestible but also not oversimplify it to the point that people uh, kind of think that the understanding is is that simple and they can run with it and develop products and everything and now they know how the endocannabinoid system works and you know and so uh, that's yeah uh, that's a very um big big topic another thing that's been on my mind and i know we're we're just spinning off now but it kind of fits in the same realm but i posted on social media not too long ago about peptide cannabinoids uh, or pep cans and um sort of highlighting that it's not just these highly lipophilic compounds that interact with cannabinoid receptors but um, there are instances where you have these peptide chains that uh, do so as well. And, you know, and they have tons of carbon and stuff too. I mean, they're not just like purely, um, you know, non-lipophilic, but it's certainly a lot less lipophilic than a cannabinoid would be. Mm -hmm. um, and so these, these dynamics, they get, um, they get really, really, really complicated. Uh, but from a scientist perspective, that's just opportunity <laughs> to explore and more things to, to kind of investigate. Um, but, uh, the role of, you know, peptides and, and proteins and stuff in general in this, this picture is, is definitely something I want to talk more about because it's, uh, fascinating, but also I think it helps people realize that there's just so much more going on than just CB1, CB2, and cannabinoids. And, and people know about now that there's more things that interact with cannabinoid receptors than cannabinoids, but I still think people uh, underestimate just how overwhelmingly complex it all is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and it's super relevant uh, as well. Uh, and, and, yeah. and a lot of things are, are, are still unknown. We really have to acknowledge that as well. But uh, for example, uh, one thing we don't know, but that would be super interesting to further explore is that um, this is a difference between rodents and humans. Um, if you look at uh, human mm -hmm. tissue, it seems like CBD, which is um, typically described as antagonizing THC effects um, mm -hmm. because of uh, so-called, I should maybe not, I should maybe not mention this because then you want to explain it too, but so-called <laughs> negative allosteric modulation at the CB1 receptor. At the, at the other hand, if you look, and we don't know it from proof in humans, but it, from proof outside of humans, in human tissue, CBD inhibits that fatty acid binding protein we were just talking about, which means that endogenous mm -hmm. cannabinoids are unable to travel through the cell to be broken down and therefore increase in levels. And it would be super interesting to test it in humans, yep. but there, these things really sound very theoretical, but it, it's, it's so relevant for us to know all this information. But indeed, uh, I'm also trailing away from uh, cannabis intoxication, antagonism and all its uses and options <laughs> but yeah it's super interesting but it's it's it is it's it is it's super super interesting um and going back to to something you said earlier about kind of the the research and how it's can be challenging to decipher things uh you know you mentioned that you have to start out administering these things to healthy volunteers and i think that's another thing that um a lot of folks just don't think about or realize um, and why sometimes drug development takes so long um, because 
you're not allowed to just start giving things to sick people and see what happens. Um, you, so you have to start with healthy volunteers, but then that is challenging as far as trying to understand whether a therapeutic is, um, you know, going to work or not. And so the, the healthy volunteer part, it more or less becomes, you know, hopefully you get to see the action that you want, but if nothing else, you at least see that it's safe. Uh, so that you can move on to, you know, uh, mixed groups and then get into your your full uh, sort of target population that you kind of had in mind um, to begin with. But um, I think that that just kind of highlights, you know, you said that a lot of this research with the antagonists, you know, it's really starting uh, sort of this newer research is starting this year. Um, what do you think a timeline like that looks like? How long do you think it would take to get to the point where with some of these first uh, compounds that um, you're working on to try to develop, um, approximately how long does it take to jump through those hoops to where you're actually giving it to uh, populations of people that um, you know actually have conditions that you hope to treat with it? Yeah, so are you talking about um, uh, intoxication or, in, uh, or about antagonists in general? Um, in general. Yeah, in, in general, general, because in general, um, you can just follow a very traditional path of uh, going mm -hmm. uh, from um, uh, cells to animals, to healthy volunteers, to small right. patient groups, to large patient groups. Um, and for intoxication, that's a little bit different because you cannot, if someone comes is a patient, so they come into the ER uh, all intoxicated, very anxious, maybe psychotic symptoms. You can't ask them, by the way, can you sign this informed <laughs> consent to try this new drug? And yeah, because, <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, can't really do that. So yeah, it's a very different uh, path we uh, we need to take, and um, uh, and it's very different compared to these antagonists. But yeah, drug drug development processes uh, take take very very long and um uh, some people don't believe it and think oh it's easy uh, to get that done but it's nice. yeah not 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 really the case uh, everything needs to be clear um uh, from a safety perspective from an efficacy or effectiveness perspective um it's nice that it's working in the lab but how is it working in practice we just gave the example with ramona bond you can tell doctors don't give it to people who are depressed and they say no right. no no i'm not and then still they do so <clears throat> um and that's another challenge of course uh, it's the people themselves and the people behavior mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah it's right and compliance yeah Compliance to the study design and everything. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely compliance. Uh, you, you, uh, as a scientist, you analyze your data as uh, per protocol. So who followed the protocol and as intention to treat. We tried to treat this whole group. However, these people didn't take their medication. These people just stopped showing up, and you know. And then you have to because that is the real life situation. Not entirely, but more than when you just uh, analyze the mm -hmm. protocol group. So, yeah, um, uh, all this, it's not a matter of months or a few years, but this can literally take decades. Um, but right now yeah. we are working with, uh, so Enabulo Pharmaceuticals is working with a compound that has been tested already before uh, for the condition of obesity, because that it was... Um, developed mm -hmm. around the time that that was the popular indication. Um, so we already know a ton about its safety and its uh, um, 
uh, yeah, response and workings in the humans. Uh, so now uh, for this particular compound that we are developing, the first one called 001, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. you need to come up with some nice name, right? Um, uh, so right. Uh, some fancy, uh, some fancy an acronym. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. <laughs> uh, and and then we need to see now. Okay, uh, we know that it works for obesity, for example, but or at least weight loss. But do we also know that it's now going to work uh, when someone comes in on an emergency room all intoxicated? And that's mm -hmm. a very different approach. And uh, yeah, that is also going to take a few years. Um, but all of this needs to be done um, in collaboration with well, our own internal team, but also, of course, with the healthcare um, uh, authority. So in, in the United States, it's obviously the FDA that we need to talk about and we need to discuss, okay, um, uh, when do you consider something uh, effective? Because this is what we believe and do you agree with that? And that's mm -hmm. how these conversations um, yeah, uh, need to uh, teach us more about uh, how, how long these processes are going to uh, take. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something I think just most people in general underestimate. I mean, people know that it's expensive uh, to get drugs developed, um, but the, the time, and and, I, and that's one reason why people were so nervous about uh, the COVID vaccine, you know, when that came out, because it seemed like it was something that just appeared uh, overnight. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, don't you have to do testing? And of course, there's like a whole decade or more of, of uh, work that's been done on mRNA vaccines before that, um, that kind of went into that. But um, it's, it's uh, definitely something that I think is not properly uh, sort of understood or accounted for. And, and people are eager, you know, they want to see these new um, therapies develop. And it's, it's especially the people that would benefit the most from it, um, you know, waiting a decade for something that may um, help you quite a bit. It's it's frustrating, but there's a lot to it because, I mean, I, I'm so glad we talked about the Raimonobont um, example because it's, it's a good example of if you're not careful and if you rush things, I mean, because imagine if um, the the checks that were in place for that, if they hadn't been there and if they had rushed this drug out and just kind of, you know, let's see what happens. You know, it's like, well, geez, uh, what would have the collateral damage have been? And another thing I wanted to make sure to come around to, and I know we're starting to get close on time, but uh, wasn't it the case that Ramonabant was uh, later found to actually be an inverse agonist, wasn't it? And not just a pure, not really a pure antagonist? Yeah, yeah. So about uh, that uh, <laughs> effect on the receptor site, um, sometimes it is... Uh, yeah. um, uh, also dependent on the dose that you are giving, whether something is behaving in a certain yes. way, um, or even in the presence of some compounds, um, the, the action might yep. uh, be changing. Yeah. So yes, in the doses that Rimonabab was given to this patient, it acted as an inverse agonist. So, uh, and that is actually a nuance that is important to, um, to, to, to understand because an antagonist blocks an effect. Uh, so we were just saying people use THC uh, they get happy if you block that, that they get unhappy. Well, actually, if you block that, they might just not be happy, not be unhappy. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's normal. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, you can think, well, wait a sec. There are also endogenous cannabinoids and endo endocannabinoids that make you feel happy. So if you block the receptor, those compounds can also not add 
and or bind to the receptor. So, uh, but yeah, inverse agonism goes even one step ahead. Uh, it does not just block the effects; it inverses the effects. So it actually actually actively <laughs> tries to make you feel unhappy, so to say. <laughs> yeah, and that's a that's a weird concept for people to wrap their heads around because I think it's, you know. Um, Generally, it makes sense to think of like, okay, a compound reaches a receptor and it, you know, sort of stimulates it and there's activity or it blocks it and it doesn't make activity. And um, the, the concept of an inverse agonist is is a little weird. It's a weird concept um, until you, you think about the fact that a receptor sort of has like a baseline amount of activity um, that's sort of, you know, it, it there's sort of like my analytical chemistry thinking, I think of it as like noise, you know, there's like always like some amount of noise there. And then, you know, if you think about like a volume or gain knob sort of there, you know, an agonist is going to bring that gain up. An antagonist is just not going to touch the gain. An inverse agonist is going to bring it down. Um, and um, so, and that's, isn't that, uh, this is just showing my, uh, lack of knowledge of the history of pharmacology, but when did the concept of an inverse agonist actually come about? Because when you look at older papers, um, you don't really ever see that concept mentioned uh, until you start to get into more of like modern pharmacological papers. Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, um, I, I'm honestly not entirely sure, but um, what I mm -hmm. do know is that uh, a lot of terminology changes over time. So uh, you might see mm -hmm. a particular um, uh, a particular behavior or a particular concept, but it doesn't necessarily always have that uh, name. So it might very well be present. Yeah. It's just named differently. And uh, a very a few very well known examples are, uh, for example, the the entourage effect was maybe already hypothesized uh, forty years ago. But it wasn't named that way. Um, yep. uh, Delta 98C uh, was called uh, Delta yeah. 1THC yep. for the longest time. Um, so if you go back in historic literature and you don't find it, it doesn't necessarily mean it is not there. It's just uh, very often just a different terminology used for it, if there is a terminology at all. Sometimes it's only a description of the concept that you see. Yep. Well, and it just highlights, you know, how um, our understanding of a lot of concepts and, you know, we're focusing on scientific concepts, but it's tied to our vocabulary and our vernacular. And it takes time for us to develop the language to speak about the things that we're seeing and studying um, and everything. Um, and it it also just going back to this this concept of the sort of this onion, just peeling back more and more layers, things getting more and more complex. It makes you wonder about what concepts today that we're wrestling with, that we don't have the right vocabulary to talk about quite the right way. And, you know, we're using certain words, but we know that things don't quite match up, you know, all the time. And uh, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see um, how some of this develops. Like another concept, just specifically on what we're talking about, would be like protean agonism. Um, that that started to be a concept that's getting more and more, um, you see it in more and more papers starting to get more and more discussed, but tying into what you've already mentioned, um, and it's also one of these concepts that just wasn't the right word for before, but the concept was always there that 
if a receptor is already doing something, how will it, how will a compound um, interact with that receptor given its pre-existing activity uh, before it gets there, you know, basically. Uh, so if like the CB1 receptor is already stimulated, how is another cannabinoid going to affect that receptor uh, compared to if it wasn't being stimulated already, you know, something like that. Um, and so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that all comes about. I've, it, protein agonism I've specifically seen in some papers um, talking about CBG because um, from my understanding, uh, sort of the pharmacology of CBG is still not really well understood. And there's some kind of weird dynamics there where uh, there's research that conflicts with each other, you know, in vitro research around how CBG affects uh, cannabinoid receptors. Um, and some of that might be related to some of these sort of effects, protein agonism and sort of these complex dynamics of whatever's going on with, with a receptor at the time that you expose it to something, um, which then it just shows like how much more you have to control to really get at the questions that you're trying to answer. Yeah, there, so there are a few things to, um, uh, uh, to, to, to note about um, um, in vitro studies. And that is even that mm -hmm. if you look in the literature, uh, you see conflicting results sometimes uh, from different research groups. You sometimes see conflicting results within different research groups. Yeah. And uh, uh, sometimes... Um, yeah, particular uh, studies just need to get replicated uh, more often to uh, to really understand what is uh, what it is going on because there might there might be uh, small differences that have large uh, impacts. Yeah, and uh, yeah, a lot of cannabinoid effects don't even seem to be um, uh, cannabinoid receptor uh, mediated. Mm -hmm. um, same is true for CBG, uh, by the way. Um, yep. Some of its uh, uh, in therapeutically interesting effects are, are um, uh, not in the in the cannabinoid system, but uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, on cannabinoid re receptors, different receptors. But indeed, targets a target in a body, and that, that a receptor is a protein as well. A, a target protein mm -hmm. in the body does not necessarily need to be a receptor. Um, and, right. and if you allow me to just uh, go back to the, the naming, because I thought maybe you find it an interesting anecdote if you haven't mentioned it in the podcast already. Um, but uh, around 2010, in the cannabinoid world, there was actually uh, a debate that you might nowadays not imagine anymore happening. But there was a debate to entirely rename the cannabinoid system. Because mm -hmm. the uh, cannabinoid system name uh, had such a taboo actually around it. It was very hard if you mention, I want to study the cannabinoid system. It's very hard to get certain research grants and so on. Uh, quite a stigma. And if you change that name, I mean, uh, dopamine system, serotonin system, all s sound very innocent. So if you just give it the name that is not associated with cannabis, and that already <laughs> solves problems for you as a researcher to get certain grants. And um, I thought maybe you find that interesting or your listeners interesting to know that um, uh, names are being invented, changed, and uh, the cannabinoid yeah. system was certainly also target of a huge discussion uh, in uh, around 2010 on this matter. And what was... Uh... <clears throat> 
what were some of the like proposed alternatives? Because um, I like I'm familiar with, you know, sometimes cannabinoid research will just, especially like endogenous cannabinoid research, will be kind of lumped into icosanoid research and that sort of thing. So they don't have to specifically talk about you know endocannabinoids. Um, but what what were some of the names floating around? Because um, I don't I don't know if I remember. Yeah, I so I honestly uh, I I visited the first half of a, of a, of a live discussion going on, but not the second half because I had a teleconference at that time. So <laughs> yeah, I know yeah, how that is. I yeah. honestly uh, don't remember those names, but uh, I can probably look back in the notes and <laughs> or or tell you to just a, to talk to about someone else. A bioactive lipid signaling system. <laughs> yeah, really focused on uh, yeah on, on on other chemicals names but i can have uh, lots of the names are are not even chemical names like uh, the, the the cannabinoid system not necessarily and then the mite uh yeah, yeah. Uh, 2ag is a very different story of course uh, <laughs> but uh yeah I, but i i would advise you and i yeah i can introduce you to talk about people actually uh, active in that discussion uh because that's of course uh, yeah, a very uh, interesting topic it definitely is, and it's uh, um, it's an important strategic thing because while it's annoying to not be able to just say, you know, call it the you know the, the sort of language that we've developed for it, you know, it is a strategic thing because if you want to move forward and you want to get the research done that needs to be done, um, these are the kind of institutional games that you sort of learn that you have to play. Um, you know, like you said, to get the grants and everything. And and something that people don't realize, like the NIH, I mean, they do have grants, you know, for endocannabinoid system research. But like you said, you just have to be careful about how you approach that. And generally, a lot of those grants are looking, wanting to see, um, it's been a while since I looked at them, but I remember they had a couple of like two or $3 million grants looking at uh, pain and then another one looking at, um, um, just exactly what you're talking about, uh, trying to deal with uh, CB1 receptor antagonism, um, addiction, and THC intoxication um, research. Um, and so if you know the way to approach those grants, there's a lot you can do, but you kind of have to, yeah, you, you have to understand the systems that are you know at play and how the people that make those decisions, how they're going to be thinking about the request and the language you're using. Um, and it's, it's sometimes frustrating, but it's, that's a very important thing to bring up. And it's, it's funny too, just, I don't know, humans, we can be kind of weird sometimes. <laughs> definitely. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I definitely want to, want to connect with, with, uh, some of those people. That would be great. Um, and I know we only have like five minutes here, so I'm going to start wrapping up, but, um, this has been a, a wonderful discussion. This, gosh, this hour and 15 minutes just like disappeared. Um, I, I honestly didn't expect that we would spend the whole time really uh, diving into um, CB1 antagonists, but this is awesome. I'm glad we did. Um, I didn't know if it would, if it'd be possible to eat up an hour talking about that or not. And apparently it was really, really easy. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. Um, Keep me updated, you know, as always on um, everything that's that's going on. It's obviously going to be fascinating to see what um, the outcomes of some of this are, even though it's going to take a while to do. Um, it's I I hope to see 
um, some good movement on this because, like we said at the very beginning, these are these types of antagonists are tools that you know we need. Um, you know, and especially like I have a two-year-old daughter, so I think about like what if she gets into something, and you know, um, what what do you do other than you know I'm not worried about her physiological safety. You know, is but it is certainly just that experience is that can affect that can affect a child in, in big ways. It can be really, really scary. Um, and so, you know, knowing that, that this is being worked on is, is exciting to me. And I hope that after this discussion, people will um, approach the topic a bit more critically and, and kind of uh, recognize why um, that need is there and the lessons that we've learned from this type of research so that future drugs like this can be developed in a safer way with an appreciation for all of that nuance um, that goes into it uh, so that we don't have the same problems that we've had before. Definitely. And they were so avoidable. And uh, that is why it's uh, really, yeah. really unfortunate that happened what happened. But uh, this is actually, it, there was this huge wave. It was very fashionable almost to uh, to do CB1 antagonist research uh, 15 years ago. And I'm very, very glad that uh, this wave is back. And I know that uh, the um, authorities, like you just mentioned, the NIH, are interested in this type of um, antagonism for a, a different reason than in the past. Um, and namely, indeed, the intoxication and the addiction, which are uh, for some people unimaginable, but for other people, real and, and big problems. Yeah. But <clears throat> hopefully um, that will open up new doors uh, for this class of compounds to also be evaluated for other types of new, um, <clears throat> sorry, for other types of new therapeutics and new opportunities because we have only touched on the tip of the iceberg in terms of yeah. uh, options for these compounds. Well, and that's, that's what I was thinking. As like in our discussion here, you know, we talked about obesity and um, depression and stuff. We haven't really talked about, um, you know, cannabis use disorder. And, um, and then beyond that, there's a, a whole other world. I mean, like you were talking about metabolic disorders beyond just obesity, but, you know, other um, uh, sometimes really uh, challenging presentations of metabolic disorders or people don't really have many um, treatment options or their treatment options are very aggressive. Um, you know, I have a couple of people in my life that, you know, deal with issues like that, that take quite a few fairly powerful drugs to try to manage it with some, you know, pretty significant side effects that they just kind of have to deal with. Um, and so seeing better options um, for stuff like that is is exciting. And um, thinking about, um, you know, we talk about CB2 receptors being so involved in inflammation and stuff, but CB1 as well. And so thinking about um, inflammatory disorders and other things, um, you know, like that, uh, it's going to be really fascinating too. So I agree. We're just like scratching the, the very surface here of where, you know, these types of therapeutics could go. So yeah, super, super fascinating. Always, always really fun to chat pharmacology with you. Um, and I guess it, it's worth mentioning on here that um, you and I are working on putting together some courses for uh, the Curious About Cannabis um, learning platforms. I'm really excited about that, that 
you know, some a lot of the topics that we're talking about, uh, we're trying to put together kind of a more formal uh, kind of bundle of courses so that people can um, learn about this in a more kind of uh, formalized way with um, assessments and everything and, and really try to wrap their heads around this. So I'm, I'm really, really excited to, to get that out. And it's been really um, awesome to have you part of the workshops as well. So anyone listening, <clears throat> if you're interested in learning from Dr. Klumpers about cannabinoid pharmacology and uh, all that sort of stuff, um, she's a part of our Curious About Cannabis workshop series. Um, she'll be teaching, I'm hoping this episode will come out before then, but uh, she'll be teaching in our advanced workshop soon. Um, about some more advanced uh, kind of pharmacology concepts. And she's participated in our um, intermediate workshop um, as well. So if this is stuff that really interests you and excites you and you want to learn more, um, we're working on all sorts of ways to give you opportunities to do that. And I encourage you to do so because, um, yeah, you're a wealth of knowledge and it's it's always great to, uh, to speak with you and, and learn from you. Always take away something new. So I appreciate everything that uh, um, that we've been able to do together and I appreciate you being willing to spend the almost hour and a half here mm -hmm. today. It's been great. Well, that's mutual. And thank you for your kind words. It's uh, really fun to talk pharmacology and uh, to do uh, all these courses uh, with you and with your students. And uh, yeah, to get back uh, to what we talked about earlier, um, uh, indeed, it is very, very exciting that I know that within a year from now and hopefully much sooner, we will actually get some results on whether uh, this yes. compound is going to reverse uh, THC intoxication, and I will definitely keep you and hopefully also your listeners uh, uh, updated on the results. Absolutely, yeah. We'll just have to have like an annual drop in <laughs> and keep keep checking on on all these developments. But you always have such fascinating stuff going on. So, yeah, it's been great. Um, and yeah, everyone listening, thanks so much for tuning in and uh, taking the time and. As always, if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, um, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And um, uh, Dr. Clumpers, make sure to uh, plug Canify as usual. Um, and if there's anything else you want to share with people so they can learn more about the work you're doing, um, I'll hand the platform over to you to close us out. Oh yeah, uh, sure. Um, so I will otherwise send you some URLs that you can uh, put Perfect. with this, um, uh, this podcast. Uh, we'll not uh, promote too much in here in the ending, but I just uh, hope that everybody uh, found it uh, very interesting. And uh, if they have more questions, maybe they can ask me or you. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope they keep on listening to your interesting podcast. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers.